like you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Malachi. That one's kind of easy to find. It's the last book in the Old Testament. If you get to books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you went too far, go back. Last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And I was thinking about it the other day. It was about uh, three and a half months ago that we started our study of the Minor Prophets, those twelve shorter books at the end of the Old Testament. And I don't know what your thoughts were as we started, but you, you who have been here a while know me that I'm primarily a, a New Testament guy, and uh, I love the letters of Paul, and I, I tend to kind of get socked in there. And so uh, even when I started into these minor prophets, I was kind of wondering, okay, what is the, what is the, the gist of this going to be? What, what are the messages going to be like? And uh, sometimes you have this mental image, you know, that the prophets are always... Uh, uh, screaming fire and brimstone and doom and gloom and judgment and all those kind of things coming on the people. But what we've discovered as we have gone through uh, each one of them, starting with Jonah, and I started with him because uh, he was the one out of the whole group that was specifically sent to another nation besides Israel. He was sent to Nineveh among the Assyrians. And his message was the love of God for really ungodly people that weren't even a part of Israel. And all through the Minor Prophets, we've seen how God is a God of love, a God of compassion, a God of mercy, a God of long-suffering, one who cares for people and gives every opportunity possible for repentance, for turnaround, because he, he really does not want to bring punishment. In fact, he himself says in one of the prophets in the Old Testament, I take no delight, no delight in the punishment of the wicked. It does not give God pleasure to bring punishment. He longs to bring redemption and restoration. And as we come to Malachi this morning, the last of these uh, shorter prophets we find out that God is still demonstrating His covenant love for His people. And the book opens that way, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. I mean, that's how he starts. I have loved you, says the Lord. That's his focus. I want to remind you a little bit of the times in which... Uh, we are studying now where Malachi is prophesying. Um, you know that the, the Jews that remained, the, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, had been carried off captive to the land of Babylon. And God said, this is going to happen if you don't get your act together. This is what's going to happen. Well, the, it did happen. They ended up in captivity. And uh, from the time the temple was destroyed until the time it was rededicated, was a 70-year period. During that period of time, while they were in captivity, God said, I'm going to allow you to go back and rebuild. I'm going to allow a remnant to return, and I will raise up the nation of Israel again through the remnant of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And so, uh, under Cyrus and other kings of these foreign nations, they were allowed to return. 
But as they returned to the land of Israel, to the land of Palestine, as they went back to Jerusalem and began to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls, it was much more difficult than they anticipated. They had a lot of opposition from their neighbors. The work was hard. The city, uh, from a Jewish standpoint, had been abandoned for probably 50 years and those dreaded Palestinians were living in the area, and uh, that hasn't changed much in 2,500 years. And uh, that was the kind of thing that was going on, and, and they found that it was a struggle. And pretty soon they got bogged down in the work. Ezra and Nehemiah came along to encourage them to build the temple, build the walls. Haggai and Zechariah were prophets who preached during the same time that, that Ezra and Nehemiah were encouraging the people. And finally they got the temple rededicated, but it wasn't anything like the original. Finally, under Nehemiah, they got the walls built. But largely the people had settled into kind of a uh, mediocrity. They weren't very passionate about God They weren't very passionate about their spiritual life. They were just kind of existing. They were trying to to survive and make the best of their situation. And many of them, quite frankly, had lost faith. You might be surprised (coughs) to learn that um, there are, are many Jewish people today who go through the culture of their heritage and go through the ritual of their heritage without really having any true expectation of a God who is involved in their lives on a daily basis, or even many of them have very little... Ex- <coughs> I'm sorry. Very a, a few of them have expectation of a life beyond the grave. It's just kind of like, well, we make the best of what we have here, and we do our best, and we go on like that. And so the people had settled into just kind of a ho-hum existence. They continued the form of their religion, but they really denied and disbelieved the power of God to make any difference in their lives, or in their nation. G. Campbell Morgan, in his commentary, and I opened with this quote in the introduction. I want to read it for you. In this book, he wrote, In this book we have the last record of an inspired utterance to Israel for 400 years. It is a prophecy of a stultified people and a sensitive God. It is a picture of a people who imagine that they are all right when they are all wrong. They question every prophetic utterance. When we come to Malachi, although there is great hope in the book, and I'll tell you what that hope is in a moment, but there's also sadness, because this is the last word of God to the nation, not to individuals. But the last word of God to the nation as a whole for 400 years. I want you to try to put that in perspective. Can you remember when the 
pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock? <laughs> of course you can't. You, you read, I hope you can't. <laughs> you, you read about it in a history book somewhere, but 400 years ago, people came to this continent looking for a new life and a new existence. 400 years ago. I mean, that's a long time back. Now here we are today. And it's hard to, to even conceive of that much time. The whole history of the United States has transpired in the same time frame that God last spoke to His people and then spoke again through John the Baptist preaching a baptism of repentance in the Jordan River just before the Lord Jesus Christ Himself appeared on the scene. Four centuries of silence. And during all that long period of time, the remnant of the nation of Israel largely lived a mediocre, ho-hum, drab existence having a form of godliness and denying its power. The name Malachi actually means my messenger. Some people think that it's actually a title of a book instead of the name of the man, but there could have certainly been a man named Malachi. Begins the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through my messenger, named Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? There are key phrases that keep recurring, and I want you to catch the spirit of this people in these phrases. There are key phrases that keep recurring throughout the book. One of them is God makes a statement. For example, I have loved you. And they immediately come back and say, how have you loved us? We don't see that love. Show us your love. You're robbing me. How have we robbed you? You're not putting me first. How are we not putting you first? Wherein is a key word in the book. Wherein have we not done this? Wherein have we done this? In other words, every time God says something to them through Malachi, they come back and say, I don't believe it. Prove it. That's not true of me. That's not, that's not right. I, we're doing okay. That's what they're saying. And it is a key phrase in the book. Because every time Malachi brings a word from God, the people deny its validity. And they go on assuming that they themselves are doing okay. Malachi deals with several themes that will characterize Israel even until the time of Christ. One of them is a passionless half-hearted form of religion without any sense of God's true love for them. Look at these opening verses. I'll highlight what I mean. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And then God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. 
Now, to, to get the historical picture, Edom to the south was overrun along with Jerusalem and Judah at about the same time that, that the Babylonians were kind of ransacking everybody. And, and God comes to Jerusalem and says, I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've loved you. And they're saying, prove it. And God says, consider your brother Edom. Remember going all the way back to Jacob and Esau? How many nations are rebuilding? How many nations are recovering? You're the only one. Edom is floundering and will really never amount to anything again. You, however, have rebuilt the temple. You've rebuilt the walls. What do you mean I don't love you? How many nations get to go back and recover the ancient ruins and be restored? And I'll ask you that question. How many empires in the history of the world have fallen to utter destruction only to rise again to power? Can you name them? You can't because there aren't any. Once they've run their course, they've died. They've passed off the scene. But Israel keeps popping up. She keeps coming back. She came back from captivity. The Romans eventually wiped them out again in AD 72 or so. 1900 years later, guess who popped up again? Israel became a nation after World War II, seeking a home for all of those people who, who realized we're never going to be safe in any other country. We need to go back home to the land of Palestine. And what do we have today? Israel, once again, is a sovereign nation. How does this ever happen? God says, show me the evidence. I've loved you because I keep taking care of you. I keep blessing you. I keep restoring you. I keep reviving you. Can't you see? Of course they couldn't see. They were struggling through the difficulties of trying to rebuild. But they were rebuilding. By the way, don't get hung up on, on this uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Um, first of all, in the context of the passage, he's talking about the nations, not the individuals. But even concerning the individuals, God chose Jacob, the secondborn, to be the lineage through which the Israelites would come and all the nations of the world would be blessed. Esau did not have to rebel against God. That was his choice to run as far from God as he could run out of jealousy and frustration. Because he was the firstborn, and in culture and tradition, should have inherited the birthright, but God had given it to Jacob by choice. That was his sovereign choice. But Esau's reaction to it was his own reaction and response, and as a consequence, that whole nation basically was rivalry with Israel throughout its history. Um, don't get hung up there thinking that God predestines people to hell. I, I have a hard time finding anything like that in Scripture. If He takes no pleasure in the punishment of the wicked 
and if he wants every man to be saved and coming to a, come to a knowledge of the truth, there's something else going on here besides the concept of predestination to destruction. But moving along in the book, the second thing that they were struggling with was the corruption of the priesthood and religious leaders who practiced for profit and went along with the trends of the times. Look with me in verse 6 of chapter 1 for just a moment. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where's my honor? Or if I am a master, where is my respect, says the Lord of hosts? O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So so here's the word. Malachi says, you priests, you religious leaders, you have despised God's name. And they say, how have we done that? We're here in, in the temple every day. We're doing sacrifices. We're going through the religious program. We're following all the ritual. How can you say that we have despised God's name? Aren't we religious? And he says, verse 7, you are presenting defiled food on my altar. And you say, oh, good grief. How have we defiled your food? In that you say the table of the Lord is to be despised. When you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? When you present the lame and the sick, is it not evil? Why not give that to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such an offering on your part, will he receive you kindly? Says the Lord, Oh, that there was one among you that would shut the gates, that you would not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord. Let me put that in modern terms for you. Let's get the picture. Remember what I said about the people? They're struggling for existence. They're, they're having a tough time. They're grumbling and complaining. They're frustrated with their circumstances. But they're Jews. And there's a temple. And they've got to be religious. Okay, so we have to go to, to the, we have to go to church. Can I just modernize this? Okay, so we have to go to church. Because that's what we're supposed to do. And I have to bring an offering. They didn't so much bring a lot of money in those days, but they brought brought lambs and goats and whatever else. So here's what they do. They go out in the field. Which one of these do I think will not survive the winter? Which one of these is sick? Which one of these would I never eat myself? They're 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 blind. They're they got broken legs. Let me get the worst, most pitiful, diseased example from my flock. I got to take something to church, so I'll take that because I was going to throw it away anyway. That's what they're doing. So they bring in the lame and the blind, the sacrifices. God said. Bring me the firstborn. Bring me the choice. Bring me the best. 
they say, I'm going to bring the worst I can find. I'm going to bring what I don't want. And I'll just do my religious thing. And they bring it to the priest. And here's where, here's where it ought to stop. I mean, the priests are supposed to be the, the, the people of God. They're supposed to be the men of God. They're supposed to be the ones who are teaching the people what is right and appropriate. And, and they come in the door dragging these poor, sickly, sorry excuses for a sacrifice. And the priests say, oh, welcome to church today. We're so glad you came today. Thank you very much for your offering. We're going to offer that. The Lord forgive your sins. The Lord bless you. And God's going... It just makes him sick. The priests are not even calling attention to the people. You're just hauling in what you'd throw away anyway. Instead, they're patting them on the back and saying, nice job, nice job, good people. You're doing a great job. God's just going to love you so much. And they're offering these things before the Lord. And God is saying, don't you think I can't see? Would you give this to your governor? Would you take this to the mayor? Would you invite someone over for dinner and serve this to your guest? Do you want me to take it? And you think, I'm going to bless you when you have that attitude? What's wrong with you? The priests were in collusion with the people. Times were tough. Anything goes. They were just taking whatever came along. There was no conviction. There was no solid preaching. There was no sense of moral justice. The priests were right along with the people. A corrupted priesthood and religious leaders is a sign that a people have backslidden far from God. Put that in the context of your daily newspaper. Then there was a moral decline resulting in a casual attitude within society toward marriage and family and divorce. You can look over in um, chapter 2, and you say, and this is at verse 13, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and groaning because He no longer regards or accepts your, uh, your offering with favor. And you say, why? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one that has done this has a remnant of the Spirit of God. For I hate divorce, verse 16, says the Lord God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong. So take heed to your spirit. What was happening throughout the culture, throughout the society, was that they had begun to just be self-seeking and self-serving. And the men were putting out their wives by divorce and they were taking foreign wives. Boy, those Samaritan women really look good. Think I'll go marry one of them. And in those days, it was not so hard to get a divorce because all you had to do was gather up your wife's belongings, throw them outside the house into the street, 
walk out behind it and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. And let your neighbors hear you do that. It was done. You were divorced. She was alone. There weren't any courts to go get alimony from in those days. She was destitute. She had no way, really, to survive. And the guy go trotting off with some new chick, you know, that he'd found somewhere else. Visiting the bars on the periphery of Jerusalem. Fraternizing with all the other women from the other nations. And the home was disintegrating and the moral climate was pathetic. And God says, do you wonder why I'm not paying any attention to you? You've ceased to be my people. You've ceased to act with righteousness. And, and this is where God utters that famous statement. I hate divorce. Now, friends, the, the truth is, in the New Testament, even Jesus recognizes it takes two to be married. It only takes one to get a divorce. And there are circumstances where even Jesus acknowledged that it was permissible. An adulterous relationship would be one of those. Or desertion. Again, it takes two to stay married. It only takes one to leave. You can't, you can't unless you chain them to the doorpost or something, you can't keep a spouse from leaving who's intent on leaving. But that doesn't change how God feels about it, even in the extreme cases. His attitude is, I hate divorce. It destroys the home. It destroys the family. It breaks down the fabric of society. There's no way around it. We like to make ourselves think today that we can... Uh, ignore God's covenants with impunity. But the reality is, is that we see a whole generation of young people coming into adulthood from broken homes that are further exporting and proliferating this problem. And, and I was interested to note that there's even some articles been coming out lately and a friend of mine told me about a, another movement that does not even associated with the church of uh, trying to recover manhood among men. And what I mean by that is not, not the macho quarterback image or whatever, but, but men who stand for character, men who stand for principle, men who are committed to their children, men who are committed to their families, men who will be men in all the right sense of the word. These people had abandoned those institutions. They had abandoned their families. They had abandoned their children. How do I know that? Because Malachi at the very end says, verse 6, the last statement, I will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. There was a general breakdown in the climate of the home. We see that today. Malachi could be speaking to us. There was a loss among the people of 
spiritual goals and true worship that resulted in withholding the tithe. Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Well, let's go back to verse 8. Will a man rob God, yet you're robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and pour out for you a blessing until there is no more need. Then I will rebuke the devourer, so that it may not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, and the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land. In Malachi's time, times were hard. We've said that a few times now. Let me remind you, times were hard. It was difficult to make ends meet. People were struggling. They were trying to get their own homes fortified and, and, and solid. They were struggling to care for their own needs. What happens when people get focused on themselves? And when they are just going through religious duty out of a sense of duty, but without passion. Give a tithe? Give a tithe? Wait a minute. You want me to give 10% of what I make to the church? What's wrong with you? You lost your mind? These are tough times. You must be crazy. But God has always had a plan for the growth and expansion of His kingdom, and that plan has involved the commitment of His people to the work. And the way that we give reflects the attitude of our heart. Jesus, you remember what He said in the Sermon on the Mount? Where your treasure is, there your heart is. What you do with your money reflects your value system. It's a direct indicator of what's important to you. These people were neglecting the care of the temple and the work of God. And as a consequence, the temple was suffering and the priesthood was suffering. This is one of those points that's hard for me to preach, okay? But you just, I just have to do it because it's there. And those of you that know me well know I seldom speak on this topic. But here it is in Malachi I can't hardly avoid it. It's reality. What's the analogy in the New Testament? We don't have a temple anymore. We don't have a priesthood anymore, patterned after the Old Testament. So what is the analogy in the New Testament? Well, God says there are three things that we need to be concerned about within the family of God in the work of ministry. We need to be concerned about the poor. We need to make sure that those among our number who are legitimately struggling, are cared for. 
Not the lazy. If a man won't work, the scripture says, don't let him eat. But we need to make sure that those who are genuinely struggling and unable to, to work and produce their own living within the family of God, that they are cared for. We also find in the New Testament the pattern of investing in missions. Paul and Peter and others who traveled about as preaching the gospel and establishing churches. The, the established churches provided for them financially, provided for their, their needs. They made sure that they could do the work. And the other thing that Paul says that we ought to be mindful of is those who give their full attention to preaching and teaching the Word of God and to prayer. They should be uh, compensated so that they can spend their time without being concerned about making a living in other ways. And so even in the New Testament, we find that the plan of God is for the people of God to support the work of God in the expansion of the kingdom of God. And it's a demonstration of our trust in God and our love for Him. And God, throughout the Scripture, always makes it plain, this is the first thing you do. It's the first fruits. I was having a conversation with a person this week about the subject of tithing, and he said an interesting thing. He said his father-in-law used to say, the pen will lie. What he meant by that was, if you take your pen and you write down all your needs and expenses, and you add them all up, you may become convinced that you cannot afford to tithe. You may become convinced that you don't have enough money to pay your own bills. He says, the pen will lie to you. But if you put God first, and you reflect that commitment in the first fruits of your giving, God says in this passage, verse 11, I will, verse 10, I will pour out for you a blessing till there's no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes. In other words, God says, I'm going to look out for you in ways that you will not imagine. I'm going to keep you from losing your money. I'm going to keep you from experience. I'm going to work mysteriously behind the scenes. One of the things that I think happens if you put pen to paper and decide to honor God from the first fruits of your income uh, is that you will be a wiser money manager because God will give you wisdom. If you have to pray over the first giving, you may have to pray over all the rest of the giving. It may be that your spending patterns change. It may be that your life comes into alignment. It may be that other things happen. And there will be things that happen behind the scenes that you may never know about until you get to heaven. You know, the, the, the vehicles that keep running beyond the time they should stop. And like in the wilderness, the shoes that don't wear out, and other things. Our whole lives are lives of faith. 
And don't believe for a moment that God doesn't work in the details behind the scenes. That's what he's saying here. I will meet you. But the people of Malachi's day were reflecting their hard attitude. We can't afford to give. Don't you know times are tough? We can't afford this. And God says, you're robbing me. You put me first. You put me first. And, and we do that without the expectation. I'm going to give to God so He'll give me more. We do that because we love the Lord and we love His work. But God says, when you put me first, and you put me to the test, I will care for you. And then, there's a promise of hope. And this is the good news in this book. I want you to look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And they will be mine. Verse 17 of chapter 3. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. There's a powerful message here. I want you to get it. The nation may be on its way to destruction. The church may be backslidden or even apostate. But when you hear the Word of God, as these few people did, as Malachi preached, most of the people said, Where in? Where in? Nonsense! I don't believe you! But some of the people, a few of the people, got together and they had this conversation among themselves. They, they had this little meeting. And Frank and Marge and Nary and me, we were having this conversation. Malachi's right. Don't you think he's right? We need to do what God says. We need to honor the Lord. And God says, I'm listening. I hear you. I'm going to write your name in my book. The book of remembrance. I'm going to write it down. And I'm going to remember you. And I'm going to bless you. And I'll take care of you. Here's the message, friends. Everybody else can be going to the dogs. But if you will put God first in your life, you can have a personal revival. You can have the blessing of the Lord. You can walk with Him. He will remember you. He has His eye upon you. It doesn't matter what the crowd is doing. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of a group of people that are headed the wrong direction. If you will turn back to God, listen to the word of the message, and turn back to God and say, Lord, I want to get my life right. I want to be right with you. I want to follow you. He says, 
I'm listening, I give attention, and I heard it. Isn't that good news? It's not dependent on what everybody else is doing. It's dependent on your walk with God between you and Him. You don't have to wait for the church to turn around for you to turn around. You don't have to wait for the nation to get on track for you to get on track. You can do that right now today. And God will listen to you. And God will come to you. The other thing is kind of like that that we need to keep in mind. The period of history that we've been studying in these minor prophets has taken over 500 years. 500 years is a long time. It was 400 years after Malachi before there was another word. That's almost a thousand years. That's a long time. And sometimes people say, I don't see God at work. He hasn't done anything fantastic in my day. I haven't seen the Red Sea part. I never went out any morning and saw manna coming down out of heaven. I haven't seen any miracles. I haven't been to a wedding lately where the water was turned to wine. I I just haven't seen any of this stuff happening. Where is God in our day? And the point is, God is a covenant-keeping God. He tells us why He waits. For the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some people count slackness. That's what Peter says in response to the question, where is the promise of His coming? Oh, come on, nothing's ever going to change. Ah, Peter says, don't go there. God is not slack concerning His promise, as some men's count slackness, but is patient, long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. God doesn't want any to perish. The only reason He waits is so His house can be fuller. So there will be more in eternity with Him. And so He waits. And the person who gets it, the person that understands that, will remain faithful even in the years when it seems like nothing fantastic is happening. What do you do every day? I go to my job, I pay my bills, I come home, I mow the grass, we fix dinner. You know, I go to church, I go to work. What are you doing? Are you living for God? Are you living a, a life that is pleasing to God? Are you pursuing Him? Do you love Him? Are you spending time? Are you praying for your neighbors? Are you praying for your family? It doesn't matter if the earth is shaking with great movements. What matters is, are you being faithful even when it just seems like every day is just another day? God is moving toward His goals. He is not slack. Don't rule Him out. Finally, God's nature is a God who loves, who loves to bless. I was talking with a friend this week who said, one of the hardest things I have to get in my life 
it's hard for me to understand how much God loves me. I'm always kind of waiting that if I mess up, He's going to smack me with a bat. And I live under that sense. If I I do something wrong tomorrow, God's just going to get me, just waiting for me to mess up. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. God loves you. God wants to bless you. By that I mean He wants to make your life full. He wants you to be free. He wants you to experience joy with Him. He wants you to walk with Him. He wants you to to be healthy. He wants you to experience fullness of life. He wants you to know the certainty of eternal life. He wants these things for you. And when we sin, he is, if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us. He is not one who holds a grudge. He takes no joy in punishment. How many times have I said that in this sermon? Three at least, now four. He doesn't get any fun out of giving the smackdown. That is not his plan. He wants to love you. He wants to bless you. He wants you to come to Him and make Him first. And He will keep covenant with you and walk with you all the days of your life. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Man, if we could just get that. The greatest motivation for living a godly life is not fear. The whole world is full of that proof. You know, oh, I'm afraid of God. Not very many people are motivated to be godly because they're afraid of God. The greatest motivator is love. God loves me. Man, I want to love Him back. God loves me. Man, I want to live for Him. God loves me. I want to keep him first. God is a God of love. A covenant God who keeps his promise. Father, I pray this morning you open our hearts and minds to receive your word. I pray that you would encourage us with the knowledge that it doesn't matter what the world is doing, what the nation's doing, even what the church is doing. Each person in this room can have a personal revival. Each person can have a personal relationship with you that is full of joy and delight and a blessed experience. And you make an offer to anyone who will listen. I will write your name in my book. I will take note of you. And I will bless you. Lord, I pray that you would encourage everyone here this morning with that message. If there's anyone who is not in a right relationship with you, will you touch their heart right now and draw them to yourself? Not religion, 
not a bunch of rules, not churchianity, but a relationship with Jesus Christ, Lord of our lives, joy of our lives, peace everlasting in Him. Draw them to that. In Jesus' name, amen.